Religious people, many people in many religions, had devoted no shortage of time doing their best to come to terms with death. Different religions, different people in different religions try different strategies. One of those strategies, very common in a variety of religious traditions, is reincarnation. Reincarnation says that death is not the end of life, it's just the end of life in this body. And after you die, you get reincarnated, another body. And that might be better, it might be worse, depending on the quality of life you lived in the present life. The quality of this life determines the next. Another attempt to reckon with death or get our minds around it or mute the pain of it comes with this idea that everyone has an eternal soul. This goes all the way back to Plato. And this is the idea that death is not the end of life, it's just setting the spirit of the soul free from the body to some eternal disembodied existence. And that way, life in this body is just something you kind of put up with <laughs> until you can set your soul free at death to whatever happens to be next. In all these kinds of you know, different approaches to death, you hear this common refrain that death is really just part of life. And life is just preparation for death. And when you take these different, you know, this landscape of religious attitudes, philosophical attitudes to death, the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 are striking in their difference. Right? Because Paul does not believe in reincarnation. Paul does not articulate some sort of eternal soul destiny. Paul does not say death is just a part of life. Instead, he says clearly and unambiguously, death is the enemy. Death for Paul throughout the Scriptures is the enemy. It's the enemy of God. It's the enemy of human life. It's never considered freedom or just a stage in life. It's something that antagonizes human life. That opposes human. It is, death is the opposite of life. <laughs> and Paul is insistent on that. And he declares with all of his apostolic authority that the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, will fully and finally defeat and destroy that enemy. Hear what he says again. Verses 25 and 26. He, Jesus, must reign. He's reigning right now in the present. And He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now if death is an enemy, there are massive implications for that. The way that we think about death, the way that we grieve, the way that we talk about hope, the way that we consider the afterlife, the way we consider our lives in the present preparing for whatever's next, if death is an enemy, all of that, all of life gets reoriented around that truth. It carries massive implications. And for Paul, the key implication, the heart of the thing, our bottom line today, is that if death is the last enemy, then resurrection is the only salvation. The resurrection of the body is salvation for Paul. 
It's the climax of everything Jesus does in our lives. If death is the last enemy, resurrection is the only salvation. Everything Jesus does to save us in the present leads to that climactic moment. We're going to unpack that. Before we unpack that, we need to be thinking about what it means for death to be enemy and what Paul is getting at when he does that. And if you look at the text, you see that for Paul, the portrayal of death as our enemy is all tied up with the story about Adam from Genesis. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, very familiar story. Here's God, creates this lovely garden, and He fills the garden with good things, and He creates human beings and places them in the garden. The man and the woman. And we spend a lot of time focusing on the thing God told them not to do, right? Don't eat from the fruit of that one tree. It's helpful to me to remember that there are a million yeses in the garden. In Eden, God says, you can have this, you can have that, you can enjoy this, you can enjoy the trees, you can enjoy that. All the fruit you see, all the animals belong to you. I want you to name them, I want you to care for them, I want you to cultivate them. A million yeses. Yes, yes, yes. Look at this, it's yours. Yes, yes, yes. One no. We get so hung up on the one no, and we forget all of the yeses. Where did Adam go? He went to the one no. And the consequence of that brings sin and death into the world. Paul says that. 1 Corinthians 15, 21, Since death came through a human being, who's he talking about? He's talking about Adam. Death came through a human being. The resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For just as all die in Adam so all will be made alive in Christ. Now we've been working through this chapter, and we've spent some time talking about Paul's understanding of covenant relationships. And in a covenant relationship, whoever's the head of the covenant, whatever they do, is counted for everybody who's in the covenant. And so in the Old Testament, if a king goes down, or in the ancient Near East all over the place, if a king goes down, the whole nation goes down. David and Goliath start doing battle. David kills the Goliath. And the Philistines take off. They run. Because their representative dies. That means they're all defeated. You'd think they just kind of fight it out. Chances they might win. You never know. Everybody's got a fighting chance. Nope. They're gone. Their representative, their covenant head, the one in whom they're all caught up, is dead. That means they're all destroyed. The whole Bible works in that way. And for Paul, it all boils down to whether you're represented by Adam or whether you're represented by Jesus. All die in Adam. All will be made alive in Jesus. So for Adam, he's at this tree. God said, you can have everything except that. That one thing belongs to me. And therein is this marker that reminds Adam that for all the authority, all the things God's given him, none of that is inherent within himself. His authority is delegated. It's not inherent. It does not originate with him. And that one command reminds him that God is God and he's not. He's important. He's the climax of the creative work of God. He's made in the image of God, but he is not God. And that one no reminds Adam that God sets the boundaries. And God designs those boundaries for his best. So Adam goes to that one place. And he steps across that line 
And when he stepped across that line, everything in the world changed fundamentally in that moment. Rebellion entered in. Adam says to God, I'm going to do life on my terms, not yours. I'm going to call the shots in my life, not you. I'm going to be God over my decisions. I'm going to be God, my will, not yours. Now here's the problem with that. And this is where death becomes the enemy. God said to Adam, look, giving you all these things, all these yeses, if you step over the one line that I've put some limits up, the consequence is going to be death. So you need to understand, sin and death, those two go together. Sin leads to death. And the reason for that is, right, who made you? God. Who breathed the breath of life into your lungs? God. Who sustains you? And who have you now said no to? God. It's like Adam is drawing his life from the Creator until the moment he says, I have no interest in what you have to say to me anymore. And he erects a wall, a barrier, that cuts off the flow of life from the Creator to Adam. His sin erects a barrier, a wall, that cuts off the flow of life. And that's why if you don't have life, the only other option is death. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. All through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis, Paul, all through the Bible, sin leads to death. And that's why it's not a natural part of human life. That's why it's not just another stage in human existence. It rep death represents Everything God did not intend for His human creatures. He says, I want you to have life. I want to put you in a garden. I've made you in my image. I want to walk with you. I want to care for you. I want to enjoy fellowship with you. You've got to let me call the shots. I know what's best for you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to give you everything I've got. I'm, you're my representatives. And that means there are some things that are off limits. You're free. You're free to go over there if you want to. But if you want my best, it's here. And if you go over there, the consequences won't affect just you. And if you've ever been affected by somebody else's sin, you understand that. Somebody else has ever done something and you experience the pain of that. Spouse, a parent, kid, <laughs> somebody else in church, a pastor. Death came into the world through one man who said no to God. Therefore, death is the enemy. Not just another stage in life. Death is the enemy. How does the enemy get defeated? Through another man. This is why it's not good enough for Jesus to just be God. We need God to become one of us. Death came into the world through the one man, Adam. Paul says life, the defeat of death, comes into the world through the one man, Jesus. Born of a woman. Son of God. Fully God. Fully human. 
lives a perfect life, obeys God and honors God with every aspect of his life. And when he dies, he doesn't remain subject to death. He comes through death out the other side as victor. His body is raised physically from the dead. It's different. It's a new form of physical bodily life, but it's a body nonetheless. Paul says, death comes into the world through the one man. Life comes through Jesus. If you're represented by Adam, the consequence is death. If you're represented by Jesus, resurrection, bodily life is your hope. Now Paul wants us to get things in order. We get this through our minds that death is the enemy. We get it through our minds that resurrection means ultimate salvation. But he wants us to get things in order. So he goes on. Here's how this works. You die in Adam, you'll be made alive in Jesus, but in order. Verse 23. Christ, the first fruits, and he's using a harvest metaphor, right? You go out at the beginning of the season, take in the first fruits, and then everything else comes in after that. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to him. All right, so there's two things. You've got. Two points in history that Paul identifies. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus. We know about that. It happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus died for our forgiveness and was raised so that we could be made alive. Notice how that's congruent, how it reflects what happened. Adam sinned, so we need forgiveness. And the consequence of sin is death, so we need resurrection. Jesus died so his blood could forgive our sin. And he was raised so that we could be brought from death to life. You see the symmetry between Adam and Jesus. All the problems Adam creates, Jesus brings the solution. So you get the resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago, and then sometime in the future, Paul doesn't know when, I don't know when, you don't know when, some people think they know when, they're always wrong. Okay, Predictions happen, they never get this right, it comes, it goes, but it's coming at some point. could be Two years, could be two minutes, could be 2,000 years, could be 10,000 years. We don't know. Let's not worry about that. The thing of certainty is that Jesus of Nazareth, the resurrected Lord, will come again. And when He does, He will raise His people from the dead just like Him. What's Paul not talking about? He's not talking about escaping the body and going to a spiritual reality. He's talking about what happens after that. Paul believes in that. He talks about in Philippians chapter 1 to be uh, present with Jesus is far better. 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And that's fine. Paul's great with that. But that's not the end of the story for him. There's something that comes afterward. And it's the resurrection of the body. So whatever happened to Jesus in that tomb on Easter morning, when his heart began to beat and his lungs began to expand with air, Whatever happened to him in that moment is going to happen to everyone who belongs to him the day he comes. That's what Paul is saying. The grave will give forth the dead, and the living will be transformed and set free from death. And that's a tough concept for a lot of us, because honestly, there's nobody around to kind of look at and figure it out. It only happened to Jesus, and he's not right in front of us for us to kind of, hey, can we take a look at this resurrection body and see how that works? He's not 
not available for that. But he will come back. And when he comes back, he will raise his people from the dead. Paul says, get it in order. Get things in order. Resurrection comes in two stages. One with Jesus. Number two, with everyone else. Something's got to happen in the meantime. Verse 22, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Verse 24, then comes the end. And so you get resurrection comes at this climax of history. Then comes the end because he's got to reign presently. Remember that, brothers and sisters, Jesus is reigning now. And he's got to reign until he brings all of his enemies into submission under his feet. Jesus must reign until all of the forces, all of the powers, all of those who oppose Him are brought to the place of submission. Thinking about that. I was thinking about the mission of the church. And I was thinking about how with Jesus, His attitude toward His enemies is not fury, but love. Right? Paul's the one who said in Romans, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. And it's helpful for me to think that I was once an enemy of Jesus and have now been brought under subjection to Him. Maybe it would be helpful for all of us to think about ourselves that way. There was a time where we said, like Adam, God, I don't want you to be God of my life. I'm doing pretty well on my own. I don't need you to get in my business. And that's death, isn't it? And God, no thanks. Paul calls that enemies of God. Romans 5. The great news about the Lord Jesus Christ is that he dies for his enemies. To reconcile them to himself. For grace, for mercy, for love. Perfect love. And that shapes our perspective towards everyone else in the world. Because there are a lot of people out there who are opposed to Jesus, aren't there? And Jesus invites us to be his representatives, to take the good news of His perfect love to His enemies so that they can be brought to the place of surrender through the power of the Gospel, His death, His resurrection. So they can move from death in Adam to life in Jesus. That's what He wants to do. He wants to bring His enemies to subjection, which is a place of wholeness, a place of healing, a place of glory. A place of life. His life. And when he's finished the process of dealing with his enemies, there's one enemy left, and the name of that enemy is death. And that enemy isn't brought into subjection. That enemy, the text says, will be destroyed. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Once Jesus has brought 
his brothers and sisters into his family. He will destroy the great enemy which stands against us all, named death. Now that happens, think about it, at the resurrection, doesn't it? Right? When does death get destroyed? When dead bodies come to life. When Jesus takes corpses and makes them whole. Filled with his life. Death was defeated when Jesus came out of the tomb. It'll be fully and finally destroyed when you do. Now that shapes the way we think about salvation, doesn't it? We talk about salvation in different ways and as Wesleyan Methodist Christians, for us salvation is more than that one first moment we meet Jesus. That's important. (laughs) How drastically important is the moment you meet Jesus for the first time. But that's the beginning of the salvation journey, not the end, isn't it? So you hear the Gospel You hear the good news that Jesus in love died for you and was raised to give you life. That He's forgiven you and that He's wanting to make you a new creature and your heart is softened and you're drawn to Him and you have that experience of forgiveness and healing and and freedom from shame and freedom from guilt. And He he brings you into His life. And then He starts working. (laughs) You go from death to life, darkness to light, and then that light begins to infiltrate further and further and further into your life. The one we call justification, the entrance into a new relationship with God. After that, we call it sanctification, where He makes us holy through and through. We get made new on the inside. And a lot of times we stop right there. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? Because for Paul, it's not enough to get made new on the inside and then just die because what's the enemy's name? Death. That enemy's got to be defeated too. And there's a whole lot of people who've been made new on the inside and then died. and They're with Jesus right now. My grandmothers are a couple of them. Faithful women who love the Lord. And they're waiting for something on this mother's day. They're waiting for that trump to sound. Jesus to return. Graves to come open. The bodies to be made alive. They've been made new on the inside. They're waiting to get made new on the outside. So everything in the life of a believer, before you meet Jesus, when Sunday schools are teaching you about John, or Sunday school teachers are teaching you John 3.16 and how God loves the world and how God loves you and how Jesus gave His life. God gave His only Son for your salvation. Salvation of the world. In love. You're hearing that and it's making more sense and eventually it clicks and you meet Jesus for the first time and you trust Him and you surrender yourself to Him. You are no longer an enemy. You are now His brother or sister. And then He starts working inside of you. And He's renewing you. And He's renewing you. And He's changing you. And there's things there. And there's selfish interest. And there's pride. And there's greed. And there's all these things that He wants malice and things that He's got to deal with. And He cuts those out. And He works year after year after year. And He's still working. If we're here, He's still working on us, right? (laughs) But He's taking those things inside of us and making them new. But He's not done yet. He's still going somewhere. Our salvation is still in process. It's still being worked out. 
We know Jesus. We belong to Jesus. But He's still got, there's still things that He's got to deal with so that we can be whole. And He keeps working on that. And He keeps working on that. And He keeps working on that. He renews us on the inside. And then when He returns, He will renew us on the outside. But everything is leading up to this ultimate salvation. And there's no salvation without resurrection. Hammer that into our, not just our minds, but our hearts. And everything that happens now is driving to that moment when Jesus returns and raises the dead. And you know, here's the thing. When Jesus does something inside of me, when He takes some of that anger and begins to make peace, it gives us a little glimpse of a world where death is defeated. When Jesus can take the rebellion in my life and the sin in my life and change it. And take darkness and make it light. Whatever it is, whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're saying, Jesus, this is a thing and I know it's a thing and I need you to deal with it. Whatever it is, when He deals with it, you get a little glimpse and your family gets a little glimpse. The church gets a little glimpse. The world gets a little glimpse of what it looks like when sin and death are fully and finally defeated. The transformation He's working inside of you is looking forward to what He's going to do on the outside. And so we come and we say, Jesus, don't you want to do new life? I know you want to do new life. Do it. I want to be available to that. I want to surrender my heart, my mind, my will, my emotions. Everything I am, I want it to be yours because I want my life to show the world what life out of death looks like. Because one day that's going to be the reality. Our lives right now are designed by God to show the world what it looks like to come from death to life, from sin to holiness. And all of that's looking forward to the day Jesus will defeat the last enemy. And that's the climax of our salvation. As long as we are still subject to death as the wages of sin, we have not come into the fullness of His saving power. We got a lot of it. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. We got a lot of it. But until we experience the union with Jesus in His resurrection, we have not yet experienced the fullness of His saving power. Because His saving power doesn't just forgive us, and it doesn't just change our hearts, it raises our bodies from the dead, because death is the enemy and the consequence of sin. And as long as that enemy is still ahead of us, and is still ahead of us for all of us in the room, as long as that enemy is still ahead of us, we still need Jesus to save us from something. Namely, death. If death is the last enemy, resurrection is the only salvation. There is no salvation without resurrection. One of my favorite passages in Scripture comes in Revelation chapter 6. Because it's a bit counterintuitive for us. I like passages that mess with me. I like passages that mess with you. Get a kick out of that. I'm not sure if that's holy or not, but it happens. So. <laughs> John has a vision of heaven. He writes in chapter 6, verse 9, Revelation 6, 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls, the lie, the souls of those who have been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they'd given. 
Right, so these are martyrs, and a martyr is by definition someone who's died and gone to heaven, right? Like if you've been martyred, you love Jesus more than life, and you're dead, okay? And they're with God, and they're under the throne of God. They were slaughtered. They're dead for the word of God and the testimony they'd given. Now here's my favorite part. We kind of think of heaven as this place of utter bliss and happiness. Well, these folks are in heaven, and they are not happy about it. Keep reading. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? <laughs> now, does it sound like they're having kind of eternal happy worship? Right? No, they're saying, Jesus, vengeance plea. God, hey, you're righteous. You're the holy one. When are you going to give us vengeance? You ever thought about heaven as being a place where like, martyrs are asking Jesus to vindicate them? That messes with my world a little bit. <laughs> but that's what it says. It, my favorite part is they're each given a white robe and kind of told to rest a little longer. It's kind of like with your kids when they're nagging you. It's like, just hang on, it's going to be okay. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. We're not there yet, but we'll get there. They're like, Come on, are we, are we there yet? Vindicate us already. Come on. It's unjust to die for Jesus. It's not right. We gave him our lives, and now we're dead. Do something about it, God. Now here's the thing. If you're dead and you want to be vindicated, what's the only thing that makes that right? It's the thing that happens at the end of the book of Revelation. They get raised from the dead. It's true for Jesus. Jesus died because he loved God more than life and because he loved you more than life. And then God raised him from the dead. These martyrs died and went to heaven because they love Jesus more than life. That they'll be raised from the dead. What about you? If the end came today, would death have the last word? Or would resurrection be your reality? It's a really important question you belong to Jesus, it's hope. That's what Easter means, friends. Easter means Jesus gets raised from the dead first. You get raised from the dead last. Next. When he comes. That's the heart of Christianity. This is what it means to be a Christian. Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, if you give up on this, just go home. The Lord Jesus Christ allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. He allowed all, the, all of his own fury against sin to fall on his own body. Right? In the Gospels, Jesus is the one who says, I'll be the judge on the last day. I'll be the one who separates the sheep from the goats. And then the judge on, goes to the cross for, on, be, on our behalf and says, I'm going to Pour out my life for you, even though you had made yourself my enemy. Jesus loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And that's why he has committed every energy in his being to bringing you from the dead. 
He wants to change your heart now. He wants to raise your body later. The question is, what needs to change now? So that we can have a clear path to what comes later. Resurrection is salvation. There is no resurrection. There's no salvation without it. Jesus loves us more than we can imagine. What are you going to do with that?